believe it or not, there are times when it is okay to jump to the conclusion of a document. For instance, I've done a lot of research in my education times, and sometimes I get this big, thick book, and I want to find out, okay, what, what's the point? And so I'll read the introduction, and then I'll jump to the conclusion. What are the final things? What, what, and then, then I'll decide if I want to go through and look at some chapters. So sometimes it's okay to jump to the end. Uh, but, you know, there are other times you don't want to spoil the surprise. If you're reading a mystery novel, you don't want to read the conclusion first. You want to be drawn into the story. We have a term that we use now for those times when someone's going to give away the end. We call it a spoiler alert. Well, well today there's a spoiler alert coming. I'm going to do something today that I have never done in my entire career as a, as a pastor, I am going to start a new series in a new book, and we're going to start with the last chapter. So if you have your Bibles with you this morning, turn to Romans 16. And you say, Pastor Scott, why? Why are we starting at Romans 16? Well, we're starting at, because it does seem odd to start a book of the Bible at the end. I had not even thought about doing this. And as I was doing my preparation, I ran across a, a small commentary by a current theologian named Dr. Scott McKnight. And he, the book is entitled, Reading Romans Backwards. And uh, he does what I'm not going to do. He actually, his whole commentary starts from chapter 16 and works its way to chapter 1. What I discovered from Dr. McKnight is something that I think we need to remember. Letters in the first century, and Romans is a letter, were not written like our letters. Our letters we write, if, or emails now, but we write and we kind of give some background. Hey, good to talk to you. How are the kids? You know, we're doing great. The kids are growing. Grandkids are growing. And we give all that kind of introductory stuff. In first century letters, all of that was done at the end. All the greetings, say hey to folks, it was all at the end. And sometimes, and especially the book of Romans, if you've ever gone through the book of Romans from chapter 1 to the end, about the time you hit chapter 15, you're like, wow, this is a lot of stuff. There is a lot of depth here. Oh, greetings. Okay, da 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 da. All right, we're done. And we miss one of the most important aspects of the letter. We miss the fact that these were real people. Now, I kid you not, uh, I, I think it's very important, we must always see the Bible as our guide for faith and practice. We call it God's Word, and that is true, and that's so significant. But when we forget that these were letters written to real people in real cities with real lives and real struggles and real victories, then we, we kind of miss the, the human element. These people 
were concerned about stuff that you and I are concerned about. They were concerned about making ends meet. They were concerned about political issues of their day. Now, granted, they lived in Rome and in the Roman Empire, so they didn't get a say in any of the political issues. Nobody in Rome lined up to vote. Uh, they, but every decision that was made in Rome, every political decision that was made impacted everyone's life. These people were concerned, like you and I are, about the cultural climate in which they were rearing their children. They had an added concern that we don't always have to the same degree. They were concerned about being persecuted for their faith. And sometimes that would involve being ostracized. There were merchant guilds, and if you were a merchant but you wouldn't go and do your annual sacrifice to Caesar, then you might get ostracized from the guild. And that, how would you make money? They were concerned about that. They were concerned about being imprisoned. The Apostle Paul was imprisoned several times. They were concerned about losing their lives. When we take the realities of the people of the first century and we see that as kind of the lens that we're going to focus on through, it helps us understand what was going on. The things that Paul and the other New Testament writers address, they're addressing real issues that the people were struggling with. Yes, they were carried along. The Bible calls it inspired by the Holy Spirit, but they were talking about real issues. So, we're going to begin at the end today. And hopefully it will remind us that the depth of what we're going to deal with in Romans was addressed to people who were like you and me, were just trying to live out their faith in a world that wasn't really for them. They were trying to live out their faith in small communities. Sometimes in those small communities of faith, their personalities and their backgrounds became challenging. And Paul will address that. Now, we don't have a clear indication who started the church in Rome. Paul did not start the church in Rome. And contrary to what you may have heard in some circles, Peter did not start the church in Rome. We don't know who started the church in Rome. We do know this. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 10, on that day in Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came out in a mighty power, we know that Acts 2.10 tells us in Jerusalem that day were visitors from Rome. So these were probably either Jewish people who had, who had made their home in Rome and came back to Jerusalem, or they were Romans who had come to believe in the Jewish way, but some there were Jewish, there were people from Rome there. And no doubt as they heard the message, some of them came to faith in Christ, and they took that faith back with them to Rome. And we believe that somewhere in that time frame, the Roman church as we know it started. There was something else that happened. We find it in Acts chapter 18, but it's very clear in uh, history. There was an emperor on the throne in Rome in 49 AD named Claudius. 
He got upset about the way that the Jewish people were living their lives and were kind of sometimes carping at one another. And he said, that's it. That's enough. If you're Jewish, get out of my city. And so every Jewish person was expelled from Rome in 49 AD. Two of those people were people named Priscilla and Aquila who met the Apostle Paul and became... uh, really colleagues of his. But I want you to think about something. In that Roman church that started sometime after 33 AD and for 16 years there had been this collection. There had been people that weren't Jews. They're called Gentiles in the Bible. And they were in the church. And remember these churches were small house churches. We'll talk about that in a minute. But in that collection were ethnic Jews who had come to faith in Christ, and there's this mixture. And all of a sudden, one day, you gather for your meeting, and all of your Jewish friends are gone. Now it's just a Gentile church, a Gentile faith community. And so they begin, for five or six years, they're just this Gentile community. Claudius dies, and a guy by the name of Nero comes in 54 AD, and Nero says, okay, Come on back. Everybody come back to Rome. Ali Ali and Comfrey, you know. All the Jews, come on back. We're opening the doors again. And imagine if you're a Jewish believer. You've been gone for five years. And you come back and you get together with your friends again. And you find things are really different than the way that you had done them. There's such a, a Gentile. There's kind of a Roman feel to your church. You can see how that could have caused some tension. You can see how that could have caused some difficulty. Romans chapters 12 through 15 will address all of that. When we think about church in the first century, don't think about a room like this. Just remove that from your thinking. I will talk about the Roman church and all, but what I mean when I say the Roman church, I mean all of the people in Rome that made up the church. Uh, Location determined the size of the gathering. In Rome, there were basically two types of living arrangements. If you were poor or middle class, you lived in what were more or less what we would call apartment buildings. The the Latin term is insulae. And they would be up to seven stories tall. They were not well built. If you were Wealthy, if you were the wealthier of the poorer middle class, you got the first floor and maybe the second floor, and the rest of you got the other floors up above. These could be as, as these could be a couple of rooms or even just one room. Now, if you were a wealthy person in Rome, uh, you didn't have to live in the insulae that were actually subject to collapse, subject to fire. They just weren't safe. You got to live in a domus. A domus was like a home. We get our word domain from it. And, and it was a home. And it was a home that uh, could have been quite large, uh, could have had a courtyard and an outer entrance from the street into the courtyard and then into the main living area. And uh, so where you met, the, the place where you met determined the size of community you could have. So if perchance you met at an insulae, and maybe it was on the ground floor, you weren't going to have still a very large group. If you met in a domus, you could have a few more people there. 
the, the, the Roman churches somewhere between 10 and, and in the larger churches, 40 people would gather. One scholar estimates that when the letter from Paul arrived in Rome in what we believe was about 56 AD or CE, whichever one of those you want to use, there were maybe between 100 and 200 Christ followers in Rome. That was a city that was roughly a million people. So this is, we're not talking the mega Roman church. We're talking a handful of people. I'll show you in a minute when we go through chapter 16 in a little more detail. To my count, the way I, and there is probably maybe six congregations that get this letter when it comes out. Now something else we need to realize, and when we think of the Roman church, we need to realize it was a church made up of, and these were faith communities, small groups made up of wealthy people and middle class people and poor people and slaves, and Jews, and not Jews. It was an eclectic group of people. When you think of a gathering, a church service, it, wasn't, it was not as we're considered relatively informal. Uh, for those that say it, we're low church. You know, high church has all the stand and sit down and read all the stuff. Put both of those out of your mind. Typically, they would gather in the evening. Because that's when the slaves and the poor could be finished with their duties and get out and meet with someone. The, the streets of Rome were not well lit, and so they weren't very safe. So you met relatively close to where you lived because it was risky to walk very far. Typically they would meet, people would bring what they could, and there would be a meal. And it was in the sharing and eating of the meal that there would be conversation. Now, usually the leader of the congregation was the individual who hosted the meeting. So, you know, if we met at Bill and Leela's, Bill would be the leader of that congregation. If you met at my house, Charlene, I mean, I would be the leader of that congregation. You know, and, and, and so think about that. But there were some times, and we'll look at it in a minute, uh, for instance, in the book of Acts, we meet this woman named Lydia, and Lydia invited Paul and Silas to come and stay at her house there in Philippi. We believe that's where the Philippian church started, and she was the householder. It may have been that Lydia actually led that congregation because it was her house. My house, my rules. It was her house. So those are some things that we have to kind of think about. Now, usually, the conversation around the table would have to do with living out our faith as much as we knew it. Nobody had a Bible like this. Somebody might have a, a scroll. Maybe they might have a scroll from Paul from somewhere, or they might have Mark. The gospel. They might have Mark's gospel because it was the earliest one written. They may have something, but, but they would have to kind of, what does it mean to follow Christ? And after some, often in those meetings, they might sing a, 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 an early hymn of the faith if they had one, a new one. They didn't have hymn books. They didn't have data projectors. Sometimes somebody would break some bread and they would just remember the, the death of Christ. 
But sometimes a special guest would arrive. Sometimes a special guest would arrive and that person was an emissary, was a representative. And on this occasion, the special guest arrived and in her pouch she had a scroll. She had a letter from the Apostle Paul. And that was a special occasion. And they would all gather together on that special occasion and they would hear the letter read to them, start to finish. Understand, in the original Greek, there are no chapters. There are no verses. And believe it or not, there's no punctuation. So context drove everything. In Romans 16, 29 people are mentioned by name. Of those 29, it's very clear that 10 are women, 17 are men, and there are two names that, well, could go either way. You know, as I was thinking about that, I thought, you know, I grew up with a kid, a friend named Terry, you know, but my son-in-law's mother, her name is Terry. They're spelled the same way. So we have that in English, and you had that in the ancient world too. So there are two names, Olympas, A-S-O-L-Y-M-P-A-S, and Hermas, H-E-R-M-A-S, and scholars go, well, we don't know them, so we don't know, but they could go either way. What's significant about this list is that in the Roman world, women were considered to be unimportant other than bearing children and caring for the home. They weren't often given much education, if any. It was rare that a woman could read and write. They were considered incapable. They were considered mentally incapable of understanding and leading. It was a man's world. So for the Apostle Paul to first of all single out ten women, maybe eleven, maybe twelve, we don't know, but at least ten women, was huge. It showed how different God viewed men and women than the society did. Now, about in that time frame and moving on toward the latter part of the first century, there was a movement that was beginning. A movement in various quarters where women were beginning to be respected. Respected in business, respected in commerce. You, as I mentioned earlier, Lydia, she was a seller of purple. That was rare. But there was this movement happening. And that's going to help us understand some things here. Now, I am not going today to look at every single name and try to give you background because we don't have background for every single name in this book. But there are a few that I, I want to look at. Before I do that, take your Bibles if you have them and turn to uh, Romans 16.6. Let me just read that verse. It's very simple, but there's an interesting phrase. Greet Mary who worked very hard for you. Now go down to verse 12. Greet Tryphena and Tryphosa, these women who work hard in the Lord. Greet my dear friend Persis, another woman who has worked very hard in the Lord. 
worked hard for you, worked hard in the Lord. What, we, what I gather just from that simple phrase is that Paul held these women in high regard because they had worked hard, they had labored, they had put their energies into the spread of the gospel and into the church. Now, another term that Paul uses is, um, let me see where it is. Ah, verse 9, greet Urbanus, our co-worker in Christ. He uses that, and you might see that a couple of times in there. Co-worker. Paul was very, very aware of his apostolic authority. Paul was very much aware that there were the 12, and, and remember Judas had taken his own life, they had replaced him, and he realized that they had a special position. He knew that he had also seen the risen Christ. He was very much aware of that, but he never let that get in the way of seeing that every person out there was still in many ways equal to him in their ability to follow Christ and to do the good work of sharing the good news of Jesus. This past Wednesday, we took note as we looked at the uh, 1 Corinthians chapters 12, 13, and 14, we, we reminded ourselves that that Corinthian church was known for its divisions, its, its trying to see who was best, who was better, who has the better gift, who has the better, uh, who, who, who follows the better apostle, who, who follows the better teaching. They were just, Paul calls them children at certain points in that book. The name Persis in verse 12 of Romans 16, is a common name of a slave in the, book, uh, in the first century. Now, remember again, in the first century, slavery was not like what we saw in the United States in early America up and through the 1860s. It, wasn't so, it was different in a sense that you became a slave if your country got captured by Rome and, and you came to that household and you lived there and you worked and you served, but you, know, you could actually at certain points earn your freedom. But Persis is, is seen by most scholars as a slave. For the Apostle Paul to greet her by name, to call her a dear friend, and then to say that she worked very hard in the Lord shows that he did not look down on her the way her culture did. To be a woman and a slave in Rome was about as low as you could get. And what Paul does is he elevates her to the status of a co-worker. He would write to the Galatian church, there is neither Jew nor Gentile slave, male nor female, slave nor free. And basically saying, in Christ, we're all the same. And so Paul does some radical things in here that if we didn't start here, we might just gloss over it. Now, I do want to, say, I do want to focus the last for a little bit here on just a few people that stand out. And the first one is right away in verses 1 and 2. Paul writes, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church in Centurae, 
I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help she may need from you, for she has been the benefactor of many people, including me. Phoebe is not part of the Roman church. Paul commends her to the church in Rome. This is very important. In fact, I would say go so far as to say Phoebe probably came in her with carrying her pouch with two letters. The first one was just a brief letter of introduction, and the second one was the letter of Romans. And Paul is commending her because for some reason, it is believed by scholars across the board that, A, she was probably some sort of that rare businesswoman in the city of Centre, which was over in Greece, that the mail delivery system in Rome was awful, to say the least. So you, didn't, you, you entrusted your letter with somebody that you knew and trusted, and they carried it with them, and they delivered it personally. Scholars believe that she was coming to Rome as some capacity maybe for her own business, but she was also coming now as a representative of Paul, that she was carrying the letter from the Roman church. And here's the other thing. It would have been her responsibility because she's the one that had the letter. She had, received, she had gone to Paul. He had to give it to her. He handed it to her. Uh, is what they believe. And, and she read through it and she talked to him. She discussed it with him. So, because her responsibility was to read the letter and to answer questions. Can you imagine the confidence Paul had in Phoebe? He respected her deeply. She's called a deacon. Now, we don't know that, that word means servant, but also it came to be an office, so we don't know. But we know that she was respected in the church there in the city that she came from that I'm not going to try to pronounce a second time. Uh, and, and he asked them to receive her in a manner worthy of God's people. That meant show her hospitality. Treat her with love and respect. And he says, give her any help she may need. It may be that she needs some contacts, you know, some business contacts. You know, maybe you got a guy and they're in Rome. The whatever she deals with, that that person can help her. Give her whatever help she needs. But note, finally, he says she's been the benefactor of many people. A benefactor is someone who supported other people financially. This is another clue to the fact that this particular lady had finances available to her. Disposable income, which is not very well known in Rome. You had to be somebody. And she had supported many people, including Paul. So as we go through Romans, try to imagine... Phoebe, standing in your living room with a few of your neighbors around, reading this letter to you and listening to your questions and answering them. The next couple that Paul mentions are uh, Aquila and Priscilla. Uh, actually, he does it the other way around. Greet Priscilla and Aquila. And, and by the way, just side note, that's so important. For Paul, it didn't matter. It didn't matter who was first. They're husband and wife. They're one. 
Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus. They risked their lives for me. Now, he doesn't go into detail, but everybody in that room who knew Priscilla and Aquila, who knew their history, knew exactly what Paul was talking about. They risked their lives for me, not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. They were known throughout the Mediterranean region. Priscilla and Aquila, we first met them, as I mentioned, in in Acts uh, 18. They were kicked out of Rome. They met Paul. Uh, They were engaged in business as tent makers. Paul came along. He was a tent maker. They kind of did business together. But eventually, when Paul went out to do more work of the gospel, they kept making tents. I believe they supported him. I believe they stood by him. There was a guy that came into Athens, and his name was Apollos, and, and he knew a little bit, but not a lot. And so what they do? They, they, they let him give his little speech, and they went up and said, come on over to our house for dinner. And, and uh, they, they instructed him in, in the ways of the Lord and, and, and in and the truth of Jesus Christ and more than just the baptism of John. And he went out and had great impact. And notice, they hosted a church in their house. If you're keeping score, that's one. Okay, we'll come, we'll go, let, let's do that again. Then he says, my dear friend, verse 5, Epinetus, who was the first convent, uh, convert to Christ in Asia, and that would probably be the second church. He's probably the leader of that particular church. And then you have Andronicus and Junia and, and all, and they, along with Mary, probably make up the third church. He, he says, uh, uh, greet those who belong to the household of Aristobulus, that would be the fourth church. Greet those in the household of Narcissus, that would be the fifth church. Uh, the, the sixth church would probably be verse 14, uh, As- yeah, that guy and several others. And then the sixth church would be Philologus and Julia and different ones there. And, and so there's probably about six or seven churches But we have another couple. We have a lot of different people. We have one other couple, Junia, Andronicus and Junia. My fellow Jews who have been in prison with me. So they're they're Jewish believers. They were in prison with Paul. So, you know, cellmates. Uh, And he says they are outstanding among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. So the first thing we know for sure is, before Paul had his conversion experience in the book of Acts, they had already come to their faith in Christ. We don't know when, we don't know where, we just know, he says, they were believers before I was. But he says this, they're outstanding uh, among the apostles. What does that mean? Well, we know that they're not listed among the 12, so we know that that's not who they are. But that word apostle doesn't just mean somebody who saw the risen Christ. We've kind of limited to that. It's a word that meant messenger. It's a word that meant ambassador, a word that meant sent one. It is very possible. It is within the realm of possibility that the apostles in Jerusalem sent them to Rome to maybe be the ones who started the church in Rome. 
We just know that they had a phenomenal reputation. They were outstanding. They were head and shoulders recognized among the apostles. And before I wrap this up, this little walk of history and get into a few things that we can take home, let me look at one more. Verse 13. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother, who has been a mother to me too. Now, some think that this is the same Rufus who was mentioned in Mark 15, 21, who was there at the crucifixion when his dad, Simon of Cyrene, was chosen to carry the cross of Jesus. That's speculation. The timing might work. We don't know. But we know this. He was a friend of Paul's. And we know that his mom had become like a mom to Paul, too. I love that. I love that. That shows us a side of Paul that we sometimes forget. Paul was a tender-hearted guy. Paul loved people. Some of you can think of somebody in your life who was kind of like a mom to you. Maybe it was your best friend's mom. Maybe it was something like that. And, 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 and that mom just accepted you when you walked in. Maybe they even called you, hey, there's my daughter, there's my son. There, you know, maybe they did that. Maybe there was that. Uh, she wasn't your mom, but she accepted you, just like your mom did. And, and she was kind, and she was caring and gracious. And when you were at her house, that was home. It was home away from home. And when you messed up, she would get in your face and tell you that you messed up. But you knew that she loved you. And when I read that description in Romans 16, 13, it just says, wow, this was real. This was real life, real people. It was these people and so many more that this letter was written to. Paul knew some of them. He loved them. He cared for them. He wanted God's best for them as they tried to live out their faith in a city that was not for them in the least. So what do we get from all of this? Let's go to verse 16. Verse 16 Paul says, greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ send greetings. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them. For such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. Everyone has heard about your obedience, so I rejoice because of you, but I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Now that really is the conclusion. He gives a couple of personal notes and then ends with a doxology. But I want to give you three things to take away from those five verses. 
Because I think Paul summarizes in those five verses everything that we're going to deal with over the next months going through this book. Here's the first one. Care deeply for one another. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, I know when I was a kid, you know, grew up in church, we had all snicker about that, you know. Oh, God, holy kiss, that's gross. Um, the kiss was a standard greeting in the ancient world. It was a sign of deep friendship and affection. It's not part of our norm. I, I was reflecting several years ago. I was back in our former town in Indiana. I have a friend who's a, an artist, a very talented guy, and and I just popped into his shop to see him. Didn't even tell him I was coming. And, and he was sitting there, and he, he was uh, working on his, uh, he's a, a potter. He was working on something. He went, Scott! And he ran over, and he grabbed me, and he planted one on my cheek and kept it there for a minute. It caught me off guard. But it was so right. It was, it was so right in the moment. We hadn't seen each other for years. It, there was something that was just, okay, I'm okay with that. I didn't go, oh, gross, man. You know, it was just, it was right. It was affectionate. It was, it was love. It was, I'm so glad to see you. And when you think of all of that, it just reminds us of just how horrific the act of Judas kissing Jesus as an act of betrayal was. We don't greet one another in that way in our culture, but the sentiment is there. Do we welcome one another with care and affection? Some are huggers, some are not. We're kind of coming out of COVID so we can do the hugging thing again if you're a hugger. But are you genuinely expressing your delight to see one another? That's the way we start caring deeply for one another. It's in just how we receive one another. And Paul wanted this church that was, had a lot of factions in it, and a lot of struggles, and a lot of things going on, care deeply for one another. That sends a message out to our community. Then he says, watch out. For those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you've learned. And he goes on to say, keep away from them. They're only serving themselves. They come with this smooth talk and, and all, and they, they flatter, and they're trying to deceive you because they want to draw you away from truth. And I think the second thing that Paul wants us to remember is that we need to emphasize the unity we have in Christ. We'll see in chapters 12 through 15 that that unity in the Roman church was in danger. There were possibilities in the Roman church of ethnic divisions, of divisions along wealth and privilege and class. And Paul was concerned because he knew, because itinerant preachers and teachers were very much the norm in the first century. And he knew there were those that came in with smooth talk and empty words and they tried to stir up control. And Paul was so mindful. Maybe he hadn't yet read the Gospel of John. We don't think it had been written yet. But I think in his learning about Christ, he knew that in 
John 17, when Christ prayed for everyone who would believe the message that's you and me, his single prayer for everyone else was that they may be one, Father, just as you and I are one. And we need to make sure that even when we say, oh, I don't know if I agree with it there, make sure that the things that we disagree on are not things of doctrinal essentialness. You know, really it boils down to two things. Do you love God with all your heart, soul, and mind? Do you love your neighbor yourself? Do you believe Jesus died on the cross for your sins? Do you believe he rose again on the third day and is coming back? Okay, those are basic things. you believe the Bible is the word of God given to us by the, through the Holy Spirit that's inspired? That's essential. Dr. Larry Crabb used to say, the older I get, the smaller the hill of things I'm willing to die for becomes. Now I understand that phrase. I'm reminded of a statement that's often attributed to Augustine. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. Emphasize the unity we have in Christ. And here's the third thing that really ties in with that. Paul says, everyone has heard heard about your obedience so i rejoice because of you but i want you to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil be people of discernment paul mentions that obedience that that characterized the roman church and you know again that essence of obedience is loving god and loving others that being said we realize that as christians from the beginning of the Christian faith, they've always lived in a world that's not for them. We live in a world that's not for us. Now that's not a, oh, I'm losing all my freedoms. No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying we have an enemy in the devil who's alive and active, and we need to be discerning. Discerning is a learned skill. The word wise means literally means skilled. We need to emphasize that God calls us to be skilled in that. He says, be wise about what is good. Be skilled about knowing what is good. And the word innocent literally is a word that could be rendered untainted. Be untainted by evil. When we emphasize God's good, we're also careful not to be tainted by that which is evil. And that means sometimes we need to draw boundaries. Boundaries in our life. Boundaries in what we listen to. Boundaries in, 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 in sometimes boundaries in the company we keep. A discerning person realizes that God is in complete control. A discerning person doesn't need to be afraid. And Paul, referencing all the way back to Genesis 3.15, says the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. God is going to win. And so we learn that on the one hand we have the God of peace. And Paul would write to the Philippians that the peace of God will guard your hearts. The two kind of go together. The God of peace gives us the peace of God. And if we find ourselves just totally worked up by what's going on in our world, we need to take a step back and say, I serve the God of peace who can give me the peace of God. And then he says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. People of discernment. 
depend on God's grace. Beginning at the end gives us a unique perspective. Picture a Roman courtyard. It's nighttime. There's a little fire going in the fire pit. Priscilla and Aquila have introduced a new person. Her name is Phoebe. She unrolls a scroll and she begins to read these words. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. Envision. Maybe Andronicus, Andronicus and Junia came to that to hear that letter that night, smiling as they hear the words of their friend and former cellmate, as he writes words that challenges them. Sense the encouragement from Mary and Tryphena and Trephosa as they're challenged to keep working hard for the gospel. Imagine the sense of confidence that wells up in Persis as she knows in her heart and in the eyes of the Lord and in the eyes of Paul, she is so much more than just a woman who's a slave. She's a woman of valor who works hard for the Lord. Imagine Rufus sitting next to his mom, puts his arm around her as she's mentioned. And maybe as she listens to Phoebe, just like any other proud mom, a tear rolls down her cheek, touched by the depth of her adopted son, Paul. My hope and my prayer is that as we launch into this very deep and sometimes hard to stand, understand letter from Paul, that we will discover in new and fresh ways that the Word of God impacts our daily lives and that we are called to live as people who care for one another in godly unity as we learn to live with Christ-like discernment. And God will be honored. Father, thank you for the reality of your Word. Thank you, Father, for the uh, reminder today that your Word really truly was written to real people with real struggles and real issues, just like us. May we, over the next weeks and months, learn to live out the truth of the practical theology that we will discover in the book of Romans and give you the glory and the honor and the praise. In Jesus' name, amen.